Watch me whip. Watch me whiplash. Let's talk about whiplash on this podcast. Okay. Instead of watching us, you're going to listen to us talk about whiplash. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back, friends, to the Therapist in Motion podcast series. I'm Jen Lee, joined by Dan Mariofsky and Mr. Paul Gaiano. That was a bit loud. We actually haven't, uh, we're excited because we haven't been together doing a podcast in like two months or something like that since the last one that we did. So today, as you already guessed, if you listen to the intro, we're talking about whiplash. And under the same guys that we've done the rest of Google PT series, we are going to went online, looked up what exercises are people typically doing for whiplash, and wrote down a list of them. And we're going to kind of bat these around and see what we think of each one of them. You guys ready for it? Indeed. Ready to go. Cool. Um, so I think understanding whiplash is probably the most beneficial way to start this before we get into why would you do certain exercises. So when you guys have somebody that comes in after a car accident... What goes through your mind in an eval, and how are you thinking? Well, some of the more uh, whiplash-specific questions I'm going to look at is going to be, did the individual see the impact coming? Were they bracing for it? Obviously, this, you know, did they strike their head? Did airbag deployment, things of that nature. If they didn't see it coming, um, was their head in a different position? Were they looking at something off to the left or the right? Were they looking in the back seat? Were they reaching it for something? Just what was the general position? How is that going to impact their body mechanics when that force occurs and the whiplash actually happens? Um, and how might that then change the presentation? So then I'm already having an idea when I look objectively at what their mechanics are and where their symptoms are. Does everything match up or something seem abnormal? And then does it fit a aberrant position they might have been in? instead of just a normal, neutral position. Right. I don't think some people would think about, did they see it coming or did they not? Did the airbag deploy, did it not? I don't see a lot of therapists asking that or thinking that deeply about it. So what to you does that mean? Their answer, how do you differentiate? What does that answer mean to you? And I mean, it's not going to make a huge difference in what I do objectively, to be honest. It's just going to help me piece the entire puzzle together. Uh, not all the time. Obviously, there are always exceptions to everything, but typically when I see someone who sees an impact coming and braces for it, their symptoms are more significant. Um, a lot of times, too, they're going to have braced very significantly with muscles, and they're going to have more muscle guarding. So a traditional whiplash you look at for the um, typical pain generator is going to be the facet joint because of the compression, the forced compression across the facets. Obviously, it can still happen here, but if they used all of their musculature to stabilize, they might have even greater tension. Maybe facet gapping and facet relief isn't a big of a deal, and the musculature uh, tension is going to be a primary thing for me to address initially to calm pain and then dig deeper into the mechanics. It doesn't always fit that way, but that might be kind of my general line of thought that I'm going to look at. Yeah, so I'll uh, chime in a little bit for things that I look for, um, about the mechanism of injury. One, I want to know where they, were they restrained or not? And if they were restrained, were they properly restrained with the receipt, with the seatbelt going over their shoulders? Is the seatbelt or is the mom bar? Mom bar out just to protect you. No, no, this is actual seat bar. Okay. It's seat belt. <laughs> that gets you two patients, one for shoulder <laughs> dislocation and the other. For- <laughs> Um, so I want to know if they are restrained, you know, and if they were restrained properly and then what side of the vehicle were they on? Were they the driver or the passenger? Cause that may have a different, you know, force transmission through their system. Um, and I also, also want to really know where they were hit in their vehicle. Um, were they hit once? Were they hit twice? 
Um, in addition to what Paul already alluded to about, did they see it coming or not? But what that starts to do is that if I can tell the direction or the supposed direction that they were first impacted from, that may change on what I may look at objectively for possum, possible symptom driver, whether it's an uncle Fajibro joint or a facet joint or a muscle guarding. Um, plus then I'm also going to look through based on if they're the driver or the passenger, that's going to help facilitate looking through thoracic cage and abdominals. Um, and then where, where their foot position was, were they one of those people that drives with two feet and they use their right foot for the gas and the left foot for the brake. And that that's going to potentially alter what may happen from a force dissipation standpoint all the way down through their feet. Um, so those are a couple of different things that, that I think have been successful lately for me of, of getting additional information rather than just, oh, you came in with whiplash. Right. Yeah, Dan brings up a really good point. You got to think about where the car was struck. And also, like he said, maybe the car struck more than once. What happened in between the strikes? You know? And I don't want to just assume that it has to be a crazy high speed for bad accident and bad pain to occur. You can have plenty of pain and significant uh, limitations after a low speed accident. But let's say it is high speed. Let's say the car went into a significant spin after the first strike and then was struck something else. What happened mechanically during that spin? You know, how many, right. how many forces are going across the neck there? Just looking at the entire uh, picture of what happened to that patient's body and where their body went may give you a better idea of what you can do to start to calm their pain and then focus on the mechanics of them back to their lives. I love that. So what I'm hearing kind of overall overarching theme is that I want to... Just like with any other patient, I want to know, I want to see you move. I want to be able to picture it in my mind. What does your walking look like? What does your golf swing look like? What did the accident look like that you went through so that I can envision what did these structures go through? Um, a big factor in that is having the restraint over you. And I think a lot of people don't think about the impact actually hits at your pelvis first and then translates up into the neck. That's why we call it whiplash. Um, and so the actual force up into the neck is greater than the force that's going through your pelvis and in through your back. So I think that's why people present with neck pain more often than they present with low back pain. Um, but it brings up a huge point. If the impact is low to high, a lot of these exercises, and I think we're going to hit this, are not necessarily a low to high driven type of exercise. And when would you do that versus when would you not do that? So I think it's probably appropriate to start into... This list of exercises. Are you ready? I was born ready. <laughs> so the first one, let's tackle. Um, I see this one done a lot. It's probably the most popular one that I've seen done. Doctors give it out just in their office when they have patients come in for whiplash injuries. The levator, the upper trap, the scalene stretches where you have your hand on your head. You're kind of pulling off to the side to try and stretch out the side that's more tense. Yeah or nay? Well, I think the first thing we do want to acknowledge is that it is important to move and to move very quickly after the accident. Too many people are afraid, they're guarded, they have pain, and they don't do any motion of any sort. It is very important that the patient is educated in early motion. So it does depend. These exercises for this, as everything, it can be a yay or a nay. In general, I'm not a big fan of them uh, for a simple reason. Again, like I said, let's just keep this simple to just a general whiplash. Individual was struck from behind. It was a very sagittal plane motion that occurred for the force. Um, looking at that, you're probably looking at some facet compression being a big pain generator. So if I do an upper trap stretch to one side, I'm going to gap facets on one, but I'm also going to compress facets on the other side. 
which could lead to more irritation, could lead to the body guarding. And then when you get out of that position, those muscles are going to tighten up in response to it. So if there is that bilateral irritation, I don't want to do any of these variants of stretches. I need motion. I need motion quickly. So if there's no pain in any sort, I have no problem with these exercises. And if the doctor gave them to me on my bitches, I'll let them keep doing it. But I'm very cautious as far as what were the mechanics, where is the force at? And then is it causing potential issues? They don't have to be like, ow, this hurts me when I stretch on the right and I come back up and it's worse. They might not keep it that simple to you. You have to dig a step deeper to make sure it's not causing continued tension and issues. Um, and if obviously this is something, of course, please stop it. But I'm going to look at what's the facet, what's the compression, what is that doing to the opposite side of the stretch mechanically? What happens if you uh, give them like resistance by them grabbing a chair instead of pulling with their opposite hand? They are creating a downward traction um, and leaning away from that hand that has a little bit of attraction. Are you okay then with that or? You know, I, I think that that's that's an important modification that I see some people do, and I think it's important to to see like from a physio- physiological standpoint, biomechanical standpoint, does that change what happens at facet joints, or is that just a first rib modification? It depends. <laughs> Again, I, I think it's a great modification. It just depends on where they're going to get their stretch. If they can do exactly what Dan is saying, grab, maybe grab a little bit lower, do a bit of a traction force, and maybe need just a very, very small side bend of the neck or rotation or whatever muscle it is we're trying to address at this point in time, it's a great modification. If they're still needing to go into a deep side bend to feel anything, then I'm going to ask myself, one, does it really need that much motion? And two, what am I doing to that side I'm compressing? So I would much rather use that modification you just specified than do just a traditional grab the side of my head and pull it over to whatever side I want stretch. But again, it depends upon where they're at. If they can get the stretch with less side bend, obviously then physiologically we've created a change that might be very beneficial. If they need the same degree of side bend, then again, I'm questioning, do they even need this exercise? There's just something much more beneficial that's a little bit more on the restricted side that would give them a more appropriate response. Right. Um, that one I see, okay, what's the actual aggravating tissue that I'm going after. If it's facet and I have them reach on that same side down, I can see creating bottom-up gapping of that same facet if they're going to move away. If it's neural tension in there, I'm going to create more issue, potentially. So then you might want to create more of a glide in and out, moving either the arm down or the head away. Um, But it really kind of depends. And that's my answer for levator upper trap scaling stretches, too. Because if it's a facet, then... I could see, if it's real specific, those types of stretches being beneficial and successful. What I'll tell patients oftentimes after car accidents, though, um, if, let's say, what Paul said, you get hit and you weren't looking, you're looking straight forward, you get hit, it's mostly a sagittal plane force. That, I'll, I'll tell patients, the, pa- the body almost takes a snapshot of when you get hit. And then you, you carry all of this myofascial pain with you. And the myofascial system doesn't really respond to like sustained holding stretches. It wants to move more fluidly. And so if you have somebody that needs that type of work or that type of treatment, that type of movement, and you have them hold those in-range stretches, sometimes it's an aggravator that I've noticed. Actually, I was going to ask that question in general. I mean, you talk about, and you are very correct, the myofascial system does not respond appropriately to a sustained stretch. Do we want a sustained stretch, period? I mean, we have a acutely injured individual with most likely a lot of tissue tension, some inflammation, et cetera. Static versus dynamic, where are you guys sitting and why? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to go right away to active movement and I'm going to preposition them to avoid aggravating components, right? And so it, <clears throat> whether that's facet driven, you know, the example that you guys have talked about, or it's it's more of an uncle vertebral driven, you know, they have that 
that that side bend component lights them up quicker than the rotational component. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna preposition their head and I'm gonna drive them not top down but bottom up. Um, so I'm gonna use an arm driver or a pelvis driver to help to to help reduce that tension through the entire system. Um, and, and you know look at it as I'm trying to hydrate that tissue, not compress and you know dehydrate that tissue by having a prolonged static stretch when you say drive you're talking about driving smoothly in and out of the motion or drive and hold at end range uh in and out of the motion that's a really good question um you know it's not like uh you know in our adhesive capsulitis talk where we're, you know we want to potentially work on total end range time that's not my goal here mm-hmm. <laughs> my goal is to maybe get to the point where they start to feel some mild discomfort and move right out of it i do not want them holding at that end range of discomfort that's just my treatment approach yeah um especially when they're you know three weeks or less in acuity getting into my clinic right and in that same realm i talk about sleeping position with people because if you think about an end range if somebody's like completely cranked and sleeps on their stomach and they're holding this all night long and then they wake up and wonder why things are worse and they keep rebounding on you that's one of the topics that i kind of go in okay what do you what kind of pill are you using how are you sleeping because that can be facet compression for hours at a time, and that needs to be considered too. Yes, yeah, so I think what I'm hearing is dynamics definitely the yep. most likely more appropriate way to go. Again, there are always exceptions, but if we have an angry, pissed off tissue and it's tightened and protected, I don't particularly see a lot of benefit to just then putting that tissue at end range and expecting it to magically release and relax. It's less likely going to fight against it further and just cause discomfort for the individual. So whether it's position during your day at work, position in bed or exercises, it makes sense to move dynamically the best you can and be aware of position when, I assume you're not moving dynamically all night in bed, um, but be aware of that and be smart with <laughs> what you're putting your body into. I don't know. You might. Who knows? <laughs> all right. Moving on to the next one. Um, let's... This is probably one of the most popular ones, too, that I've seen people do, and I do this one occasionally as well. The variation of the chin tuck. The chin na, the chin tuck. Go. Yeah, so I'll go after this one first. I used to be a big proponent of, of chin nod, or ch- sorry, excuse me, chin tuck, um, and chin tuck with then an active movement component on it, whether it was extension motion, uh, a flexion motion, an arm motion, a rotational motion. Um, and then I, I, I took a couple of continued education classes and they, you know, they talked about, well, when you do a traditional chin tuck, you're actually compromising the airway. And so if you're compromising the airway and they can't speak and they can't breathe, again, is that providing oxygenation and hydration to the tissue or is that, <laughs> is that causing detrimental effects? And oh. it was one of those things where I, it, it was, it was, it, it was changing for my patients that had any type of neck pain, but especially whiplash, mm-hmm. kind of going back to the point that Paul just alluded to about that end range. I mean, you have somebody do a, an isometric of a chin tuck where they're shutting off their airway and it's at end range. That's probably going to lead to poor results. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to the verbal cueing of, of how you're doing it. I do like a little bit of a cerv- upper cervical nod, and then I, I instruct my patients to think of there's a puppeteer on top of them who is pulling their cervical spine superiorly, so towards the mm-hmm. sky. Um, and, and I feel like that ha- helps to activate and elongate longus coli, those deep neck flexors with a lot greater success. Um, and I correlate that to you know the, the traditional evidence-based practice saying that you know, an individual without 
neck pain can do that that isometric hold off the pillow for 30 seconds or more, right? Mm-hmm. And I, if, if I really watch how that exercise is done, they're in a chin nod mm-hmm. position. They're not in a cervical retracted position, right? Right. right. And, and their vertebrae almost stacked on top of each other, not just sheared posteriorly, which is what I envision when I watch somebody do or speak about a true chin tuck. Mm-hmm. And I think you hit on something really, really important here, and it kind of gets at the heart of the entire Google PT idea. We can look at an exercise picture, whether it's a chin duck or even, let's say, a chin nod. Let's say that you actually found a chin nod on Google, which I'd be amazed, but say it occurred. <laughs> you know, are you educating the patient to do things correctly? So whoever is teaching them the exercise, do they know the actual appropriate form? And are you giving them those cues to help differentiate between just here, here's a sheet of paper that gives you a retraction, tuck, nod, whatever we want to call it, or are we going to talk about the actual cueing to do this correctly? Are we providing an actual skill to the patient that's going to help behoove them and get things back in a more quick capacity to their activities? That's kind of the heart of what this entire thing is, and those cues are terribly important. I'm not afraid of a chin tuck, if that's what I want. Mm-hmm. And typically, <laughs> acutely, that's not what I want. I have used a true chin tuck retraction with individuals where I need that mobility. But it's when I've gotten past an acute, uh, angry phase of pain. It's when other things are moving correctly. And that's the best way I've found for them to mobilize whatever structure it is I'm wanting to target as a home exercise program. So I don't want people to be afraid of the chin tuck. Just be purposeful with what you're using and when you're using it and why you're using it. And what dancing right here is the perfect example of what you should be using with your patients nine times out of 10 for that acute phase and even further into it. So just be aware and think about the thought process of think about the thought process. Wow. Specifically, specifically <laughs> um, of what you're doing. Sorry, I had a Jeff Fukri moment there. You Shout did. Out to Jeff. Absolutely did. Um, I think in some of the imaging that I've seen of my patients uh, after motor vehicle accidents, I see a lot of decreased cervical lordosis. And to me, that's like a lot of guarding through the paraspinals that's actually taking away the natural curve of the neck. So if I'm going to take them again, like Paul said, into a retraction and decrease that again, what is my goal of actually doing that? Am I getting a stretch of the muscle that actually feels good to the patient? Am I getting a little bit more facet movement and that feels good? Like, what is the actual reason for it? I don't do it a lot. And I tend to sit in more of the camp of the chin nod. My thought process is typically there's a lot more compression and irritation in the upper cervical spine with those patients. I'll see a lot of like neurologists from the greater occipital nerve and auricular nerve up there. And we know from research that the rectus capitis posterior minor that is attaching right at the occiput there attaches to the dural tube. So anybody that has like a concussion or has any more neurological symptoms, you're going to get a little bit more of a traction force by doing those nods. And I'll combine them with a little bit of a rotation left or right, just depending on what's more successful for them. Okay. So we got that one. Any other comments on that before we move forward? No, I'm good. Okay. Um, let's switch it up a little bit. Let's go cat camel or cat cow, however you want to call it. What do we think there? So I, I think, <laughs> I think it's definitely a good thing you can utilize for your patients. Um, it, too often I feel like we get very specific to where is your pain? What is painful? What is hurting? And we forget that there are a lot of other structures that can be significantly impacted here. One, just in general, even without an accident, many, many, many of our patients have limitation through the thoracic spine. Whether it's because they have predominantly a desk job, they just don't utilize things and move the technology. That, tons of reasons why we see restricted T-spines. We know, let's just keep cervical rotation as the uh, 
goal here. We know server rotation has motion down to at least T4, just to go right or left. So if they're already tight and restricted T1 through 4, and then they have anger at C7 and above, well, we could obviously take a little stress off of the cervical spine if we're giving some improved thoracic mobility. And if it's not a painful area for the patient, it's a great place to start for them. So Campbell, any number of things to the thoracic spine can be very beneficial as long as one, you're aware of what is their head position when they're doing it. So you're again, not putting them in something where it might put additional stress and discomfort across that. And two, like Dan said, what was the force that happened previously? Are you appreciating the thoracic spine? And then the mechanics that might have happened, whether there was a rotational component preposition, whether the seatbelt and the restriction had some comp uh, some play in here, where was the car struck, etc. Don't just discount that the thoracic spine is just fine after everything. How are the ribs? How's the T-spine? How's everything moving? If you've assessed it, it can be a great thing to do uh, and a very good place to start. I Almost all of my blood patients get a number of things that are bottom-up driven day one and then a lot of thoracic spine mobility that they can tolerate well that just takes stress off the C-spine. Yeah, I would say uh, I'm in a very similar boat there where this is probably one that I utilize frequently, but I'll do it in varying degrees of quadruped. So I might put them in more of a like a modified plantar grade versus a true quadruped. And then going back to what Paul alluded to on where the, the forces that went through their system, that's going to be where I use prepositions of their cervical spine or their hands and then drive the cat camel to ensure that I'm not getting unnecessary or unwanted compression through certain structures. Yep. Um, and, and I think that's a thing that oftentimes, again, going back to what Paul said about, you know, and, and kind of our ongoing theme through all of our Google PT series is about, you know, the education behind the why, what we're doing. And I think this is, this is another one of those exercises where a patient could do it and they could feel good 80% of the time. Or 80% of the patients feel good doing this exercise, but our level of expertise really comes in in those 20 that say, every time I do a cat camel or I get in quadruped position, it just destroys my neck and I feel miserable or I get a headache or whatever. So I think that's where we really can use our knowledge of, of biomechanics and diving deeper into you know, how they were positioned, where they were struck to help alleviate that and, and make this exercise become very successful. Because I think this is one of the best exercises that we've talked about so far for a patient that's suffering from whiplash. And I think it's important, like Dan said, to modify the position. I actually don't like the full quadruped cat camel. Uh, a couple of reasons. One, if we're talking about a whiplash injury, when you're in the quadruped position, your head is going to want to fall down to keep it from falling down. You're going to have to hold up, which means you're utilizing your extensors. And I've had a lot of people that don't have pain during they get very achy and sore afterwards and they don't understand why. And they think that something in therapy made them worse or hurt them. And they just might've been overutilizing an already stressed structure. On the same vein, you might have an individual that putting weight through their arms is quite challenging. And then they are going to utilize muscles to stabilize again, muscles that are angry. And there might be a problem with them becoming achy either during like Dan said, or frequently after they might get a lot of tension and discomfort afterwards. So I try to avoid putting too much stress to that area. So the weight bearing through the arms, the holding up of the cervical spine, those things can all become big problems for the individual, especially later. So I like to modify out of those uh, stressful positions for them. If I can, I think that's the best way to go. Love it. Um, I agree with all of that. And then in addition to uh, if you think about the quadruped position, the actual angle of the hips, the knees, you're you're in the same position of sitting, which is the same position you're likely in when you got hit, which some people, that's going to be a good thing because that actually takes them back into ease where the original injury happened. Some people, that's going to be a really bad thing because their body doesn't want to go back into those familiar joint positions. So just a heads up for that. Heads up, like that pun. 
Um, <laughs> um, and then in addition to that, um, one of the big thoughts about any type of injury in the Burrell Institute camp is that the body hugs the lesion. So if somebody has a car accident in their lesion or the biggest area of restriction is in their neck, you're going to see them hug that and their postural posture will change. If the lesion is in more of the visceral tissue, you're going to see them hug that and maybe they'll have a rotation component to it. Um, but keeping that in, in consideration whenever you're doing exercises, any exercise, but especially this one, I love this exercise because it's bottom up, but you may need a preposition to kind of go into that ease where they want to be and then move from there. When you say hug, you're referring to like guard that mm-hmm. specific vicinity and protect themselves in that position. You got it. So if somebody has more of, let's say the liver's one is the heaviest organ that we have. So if it's going to be irritated after a car accident, and it doesn't want to move, then you're going to see somebody that's going to hug that right side of their trunk, and that may limit, not necessarily all the time, but it may limit thoracic extension or left rotation, left side bend. They won't want to actually shift their body weight over to the left side because they're trying to hug that side. So just kind of thinking globally about what is the the, the organs and the visceral tissue go through the exact same force as the rest of the body, and the patient usually comes in presenting with whiplash, but we have to think more globally about what actually happened. Okay, I like that. We're going to do one more exercise, guys. Oh, boy. Which one do we want to pick? I'm going to go with... I think we should go scap. Yeah, I was going to say that. Scap retraction, scap squeezes. Um, I'm going to start out with this one since I've kind of asked the rest of them. Um, for me... <laughs> hey, it's true. Um, for me, I do it a lot. I tend to do it more unilaterally depending on which rotation motion that the patient likes better. If they like right rotation, I'll give them a right rotational row. Um, and I'll use different positions or I'll use a TheraBand if I want some resistance with it. Sometimes I just do the active motion. Um, sometimes I have their hands up and locked like with a dowel or something like that. If I can do that and I want to get specific motion somewhere, sometimes I don't have that luxury. They're too acute and I have to actually feed into, like I was talking about in the last exercise, give them a position of ease and then move from there. Um, but I'll do scap squeezes pretty often and I'll typically do it with the rotational component because I think that's... It's actually one of the most easing motions, I think, after a car accident, in my opinion. Why do you select unilaterally? Um, if it's facet, then I'll select unilaterally because if you're thinking bottom up, you can gap that joint. Um, the similar, the same way we were talking about in the frontal plane, reaching down is going to gap you in the frontal plane before you do that glide. If you're doing a rotational motion actually in that direction, you're getting an opposite rotation up into the neck. So you have to really consider and think almost backwards what motions would gap the neck and then flip them for what rotation motions bottom up are going to gap it. Um, so let's say somebody likes to go left and left rotation, I would give them a right rotational row and that would actually give them a little bit more of a gap bottom up into their cervical spine. Um, that's typically kind of what I do. And then adding into the, like the myofascial restriction, I'll go nice and slow into a rotation there, just in and out of that with less resistance, usually more just kind of mid range. Yeah. I'm, uh, in a hundred percent agreement with that. I can't remember the last time I gave a bilateral row unless it's for something lower extremity and it's to give them a point of stability. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. otherwise, whether it's, uh, they're in a prone position, they're in a standing position. Um, everything that I typically do is unilateral. Um, there's a couple of different reasons, you know, Jen alluded to it from a, 
uh, a compression standpoint on the cervical spine. I think that's also when you go unilaterally, that's actually getting at more isolated and, and targeted, but also global muscle function. Um, because when you do it bilaterally, you're confusing the muscle as opposed to allowing it to do what it's functional. Um, I, that was something that was hugely hit on in the PRI for baseball class was quit doing things bilaterally in a T, Y, or H position, which is, a, you know, a version of a, of a row. Um, you know, if you think about what the muscle fibers are doing and you go and you look at those muscle fibers, when you do a unilateral, a bilateral row, you're confusing them. Um, so that's a shout out to that PRI baseball course where that, you know, that they, they highlighted that really specifically. But, uh, you know, I'd learned that previously from Tim um, talking about, you know, avoiding that compression of that lower cervical spine and then all the way up into the upper cervical spine with a bilateral row. Um, so I, I, while I don't disagree with it, I can't remember the last time I used it in a rehabilitation standpoint um, or even in a, like an exercise prescription standpoint for somebody that's doing like just wellness. Um, I think you guys answered that really well. So I'm going to touch on two really quick things that I just want to talk about. We briefly mentioned the idea, well, we've mentioned repetitively the idea of doing a bottom up driver, but a lot of times you'll see patients that come in just with like active cervical rotation. They're supposed to turn their head side to side and do remember what you're doing to the set joints, what's mechanically occurring there. And a lot of times it'll be a lot more successful. It's a lot easier than to do a bottom up or a body on head as opposed to a head on body motion. That is a a lot of times easier, more successful, and more beneficial place for the patient to start. And also, breathing. I would highly, highly recommend you look at your patient's breathing. There are a lot of patients that don't do a very good job breathing diaphragmatically, and they become very dependent on their accessory musculature, so elevation through the shoulders, things along those lines. Maybe it was never a problem for them before, but they also didn't have really tight musculature through their neck before. <laughs> right. So I've had a lot of patients where that every breath they take, they're just over-utilizing. Every breath you take. We have two Grammy Award winners now, people. Dan and Dan. Awesome. Um, but every breath they take... Alright, good. good. (laughs) That's waiting. Um, But every time they're breathing in, they're going to put more stress to that musculature. And that's just going to keep angering the tissue. So getting them to actually be a diaphragmatic breather and not be afraid of their belly, maybe not being rock solid at every instance of the day, can be very beneficial for pain control to them. Love that. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap this up. I feel like we've covered a lot of good ground with this. Um, in the future, we are going to continue doing some more Google PT um, podcasts, but we've mentioned a little bit today, um, not heavily, but the idea of a concussion after a whiplash and, and motor vehicle accident. Are we screening for those? What does that involve? What are patients going to actually come in looking like if they have concussion type symptoms? We're going to cover that in a future podcast, as well as diagnoses like IT band syndrome and piriformis syndrome. Um, anything you guys want to add? about those things coming no i think you know just to make a little connection to the to the concussion standpoint i think that goes back to you know what paul alluded to on did the airbags deploy and did they strike the windshield or the window or the steering wheel or the dashboard or some other object that could be in your vehicle um that we don't always think about asking those questions and it might not be that they they even realize that it happened uh so i think that the discussion on concussions, both related to cervical whiplash and other things, is hugely prevalent and important, especially as we're starting to head into, you know, fall sports again with athletes and, and having neck pain, um, plus, you know, the, the connection to 
whiplash. So uh, I really look forward to that discussion. And remember, too, um, like Dan said, those are important questions asked. But even if there isn't the impact, you can still have a concussion. I mean, right. just a significant enough force and with the whiplash can most certainly cause concussion types of symptoms with your patient. So they're all, again, goes back to those important questions to ask your patient subjectively, whether it's during the initial part or just as things come up during the eval, all good information to have. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. We really, really love doing these podcasts. We hope you guys enjoy them and get something from them. Um, as always, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks for listening.